This week on KPBS Roundtable, California is overhauling its mental health care system. That's according to Governor Gavin Newsom, who recently signed a bill that expands who can be involuntarily treated. What this change does, SB 43, is uh, affecting the definition of gravely disabled. It expands it. Plus, a look into Care Court, the treatment program rolled out in San Diego County earlier this month. I think that there was a lot of surprise from individuals to learn the narrowness of focus of Care Court. Don't go anywhere. Roundtable is coming up next. KPBS On Demand is supported by the University of San Diego, offering professional and continuing education courses in the areas of business, education, healthcare, and engineering. For enrollment opportunities, visit pce.sandiego.edu. Welcome to KPBS Roundtable. I'm Matt Hoffman. California is overhauling its mental health care system. That's according to California Governor Gavin Newsom. He recently signed a bill that expands who could be involuntarily treated, and voters will soon be asked to help support that overhaul. These looming changes come as the state is embarking on another new treatment program involving a new type of court. But how exactly does Care Court fit into all of this? Joining us to dive into it all are Courthouse News reporter Alan Raquelmi, Cal Matters Health and Mental Health reporter Jocelyn Weiner is here with us, and San Diego Union Tribune watchdog reporter Lindsay Winkley also joins us. I want to welcome you all here to Roundtable. Let's start with some of the changes coming for conservatorships, and that's when a judge appoints someone to make a decision for a person who may need some help. The governor says a bill he recently signed will, quote, better help and protect Californians most in need of care. Alan, why could conservatorships be expanding? This is about Senate Bill 43, and it changes the Landerman Petrus Short Act. And one thing I want to say is that it talks about two different things. There's the involuntarily detaining someone, and there's conservatorships. And that first one is much shorter, whereas conservatorship uh, is up to a year or more. Having said that, what, what this change does, SB 43, is uh, affecting the definition of gravely disabled. It expands it to include the inability to provide for your personal safety or necessary medical care because of a substance use disorder or uh, a mental health disorder along with severe substance use abu- abuse uh, or chronic alcoholism. So what this does is more folks um, are now affected by this expanded definition, um, getting more people potentially in those 5150 or 72 hour holds and ultimately potentially on that path to a conservatorship. Yeah, the uh, Lanterman Petrus Short, which is also known as LPS, is more than 50 years old. And there's been efforts to change this law for a long time that have failed. And it has seemed almost untouchable until now. But yeah, now advocates and county leaders are saying they're expecting the new legislation is going to lead to more people being placed in treatment facilities against their will. 
And Jocelyn, when we're talking about conservatorships, like what exactly is a conservatorship? Like Alan sort of alluded to it, but like some people might be thinking about celebrities who maybe like have a parent sort of controlling their life, but it sounds like they come in different forms. Yeah. So basically a conservatorship is a legal arrangement in which a court appoints a representative to make decisions on behalf of someone. Um, That can be because they're considered to be cognitively impaired due to dementia or intellectual disability or serious mental illness. And so um, the court considers them as being unable to make decisions independently. And this can mean everything from taking away rights to make medical and financial decisions to control of basic life choices, like where to live and whether they can marry. In California, there's two types. There's the type that Britney Spears was under, which is a probate conservatorship. And these are mainly designed for people who have intellectual disabilities or dementia. And then there's the Landerman-Petrus Short conservatorships, which are designed for people with serious mental illnesses who are considered to be gravely disabled. And we know that there's some other types of involuntary treatment, right, Lindsay? Like like what comes to mind for me is a 5150. I think Alan mentioned it earlier. It's sometimes called like a 72-hour hold. We know that you and a team over at the Union Tribune, like you guys did a whole series on this in San Diego. What is that process and how could somebody be placed into one of those? Yeah, so as Alan sort of already alluded to, and so did Jocelyn, um, the 72-hour hold, also called a 5150, um, sort of falls under the LPS Act. And so it's one of the ways in which people can be held against their will when they are believed to be a danger to themselves or others or gravely disabled, uh, which, as we've already mentioned, was recently, that definition was recently expanded. So it touches on a lot more people now. Um and so, you know, that's sort of the the basics of, of that particular hold. And you saw that being used quite a bit, like when you guys did that 72-hour series? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, San Diego is certainly not alone in that. Uh, sort of across the state, over the last three decades, the rate at which adults have been placed on 72-hour mental health holds has almost doubled. For kids, the number has increased, you know, nearly tenfold. So it's um, certainly on the rise, as are a lot of forms of of those kinds of holds. There's several different kinds, not just 72-hour ones. So even though this is passed into law, it was passed by the legislature, the governor endorsed it. Not everyone seems to agree with the governor that broadening who is eligible for a conservatorship is like a good idea. And Alan, we know that you recently wrote about this. What are some of the general concerns there? Well, I spoke with Phoebe Bell. She's the uh, behavioral health department director in Nevada County. Um, And one of her main concerns was uh, concerning folks with uh, substance use disorder. Uh, And those concerns were also echoed by the California Society of Addiction. Um, And really what it comes down to as uh, this new law doesn't provide the bed space uh, or the treatment providers um, for people under a conservatorship. Uh, One thing Bell specifically said was California has plenty of facilities for people who are willing to go to them, uh, but they don't for those who are unwilling. And and that was her main concern. And Jocelyn, we know that you actually dove into this in a recent piece talking about how this is a big change in sort of civil liberty protections for those who have mental illness uh, with worries about the state sort of moving backwards here. Some people worried about that. Why are some thinking that this also is in a positive direction? So if you look back at the history of Landerman Petrus Short, 
It was seeking to end the inappropriate and often indefinite institutionalization of people with mental illnesses and developmental disabilities. If you look at that history, it felt at the time that it was pretty easy for family members to force people into mental health treatment and they could be locked away for long stretches in state hospitals with really awful conditions. So I think a lot of people are afraid that we're heading back in that direction, as well as there's just a sense that involuntary treatment is often ineffective and can be very traumatic for people. And has the governor or even others said that this type of conservatorship expansion is like meant for one particular group of people? Like, I feel like oftentimes we hear about like unhoused residents with mental health concerns, but are officials saying that that's who this expansion is targeted to? Well, not exclusively, but certainly a lot of the conversation has been specifically around unhoused people with serious mental illnesses. Critics are pushing back and saying there's just generally too much conflation these days of serious mental illness and homelessness in the, in the conversation around these topics. And yeah, that there, there aren't enough other services and housing available. And yeah, talking about that type of housing that could be available, we know that one vital piece to help solve this mental health crisis seems to be where people can go, housing or even like a hospital bed. And Lindsay, we know that talking about your guys' 72-hour series over there at the UT, that seemed to be like a reoccurring theme, this idea of where people can go to get help. What did you guys find there? So we sort of we sort of identified blockages at essentially every level. Um, you know, there were people who would stay um, for you know significantly longer than you would expect in emergency rooms because there weren't psychiatric beds available. You had people who were sort of languishing in psychiatric hospitals because there weren't the kinds of facilities that were needed to take them um, after they had been treated. So there are homes that help individuals sort of live with their mental illnesses and they're in very short supply. Um, And so obviously this has been sort of a growing concern for a very long time. Um, But that concern has increased as the state has sort of added in, you know, new mechanisms to try and get these people, you know, people who are struggling with mental illness treatment. Um, And I think that's sort of a recurring question is we already have issues ensuring that people are getting the, the help that they need. How is this new system going to fit into our currently broken system? And Jocelyn, have you heard some of those same concerns in terms of like a lack of of beds for these types of cases? Uh, yeah, lack of beds, lack of services, lack of housing, all of those have been kind of ongoing. And also, with respect to conservatorship, that the the public guardian systems underfunded, um, well, isn't funded at the state level, it's all paid for by counties. So that's another area that people are concerned about being overloaded. And when you say public guardian, what exactly are you referring to there? The people at the county who basically take over when there's a conservatorship, they're called public guardians, or they can also be known as conservators. And Lindsay, you want to jump in here? Yeah, well, I just wanted to add that, you know, in addition to sort of just these like structural shortages, there's also sort of tertiary shortages, right? Like a lot of people will talk about the fact that we don't have enough mental health care workers, right? And so even if, for example, during our 
project, we noted that there were some hospital beds that were in fact available, but because they didn't have the people to work those facilities, they were effectively not available, right? And so I think that, yes, we do need to talk about sort of like expanding the resource itself, but also the people who facilitate those resources. That's a very good point. We've known about shortages in healthcare and mental health for a long time. And I think the county says they need to hire like 15,000 more mental health workers over a certain period of time. Um, but in terms of addressing the bed shortage or the housing shortage, Alan, it sounds like the state has a plan. Now, sort of it, it relies on voters approving that plan with some new legislation that was passed. What exactly are voters going to be seeing next year? Right. And I think this goes directly to what that Nevada County Behavioral Health Director was talking about, because these two bills that were signed uh, by the governor last week uh, will go under the heading of Proposition 1 uh, on the March ballot. And uh, one of them is essentially uh, the Behavioral Health Infrastructure Bond Act of 2024. And if it passes, that's uh, about $6.3 billion in bonds that is going to go to a wide array of different items. Um, one thing that lawmakers played up last week was out of that $6.3 billion, uh, you've got supportive housing for veterans uh, experiencing or at risk of homelessness. You know, you've almost got a billion uh, for grants to develop supportive housing for anyone experiencing or at risk of homelessness, as well as other money for counties, cities, uh, behavioral health treatment, residential settings. Um, no, that's just one aspect of it. The, the other part of uh, Prop 1 would essentially, uh, I think the word they used is recast the Mental Health Services Act into the Behavioral Health Services Act. Uh, and that essentially would allow the state to kind of move the money into different pots, uh, changes how certain funds uh, are distributed. And um, again, that is uh, Prop 1 on the March ballot. And we heard Lindsay here in San Diego talk about like a lack of treatment beds or even more supportive housing. So Jocelyn and anybody else, feel free to jump in here too. If voters don't approve funding for more of these types of beds, is this mental health you know, overhaul, as the governor calls it, at risk of not working like how they think it will? So as Alan mentioned, those two pieces are tied together under Proposition 1, the money for the new treatment beds and then the overhaul of um, the Mental Health Services Act, now being called the Behavioral Health Services Act, which was the Prop 63 that was the 1% tax on millionaires. That being said, there are certainly other components of the governor's mental health vision, including Care Corps, the Youth Behavioral Health Initiative, Medi Medi-Cal reform that aren't contingent on this ballot measure. And we'll certainly get into Care Court in a minute, but also Jocelyn and Alan, curious of your thoughts here too. Uh, some state officials just got an update on a law that was sort of recently passed, right? And that's like in terms of insurance covering more of these mental health concerns, but it sounds like it's not panning out exactly how you know regulators intended. Do we know what's happening there? Yeah, you're talking about the SB 855, the Parity Act. There was just a hearing about it yesterday. And yeah, I mean, there have been longstanding criticisms of the role that commercial health plans play in making sure that people have access to providers and services when they need them. And SB 855, 
was supposed to address that. It's about three years old now, and there are still a lot of challenges. Certain parts of it sounds like are are working as planned, and other parts, including um, the provider networks, are are problematic at least per this hearing yesterday. And that like included a big fine to Kaiser, I believe, for maybe not meeting some of those. Uh, Alan, do you have anything to add to that? I don't know what what struck me about that hearing was the uh, director of the Department of Managed Healthcare uh, really took a lot of heat uh, from 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 prior speakers, and and at one point, you know, sitting before the committee, said, you know, I'm happy to be in the hot seat as as she's trying to explain, well, why aren't there regulations yet? You know, why why are all these people complaining about it? Um, and she did point to that uh, fifty million dollar uh, Kaiser settlement, uh, and she did talk about uh, one the public comment process and just the lengthy process uh, of bringing these regulations uh, to life, and um, did say that she wanted them in place by April first of this coming year. And Jocelyn, go ahead. Yeah, I just wanted to add. I think with the Kaiser uh, settlement and with these criticisms of the Department of Managed Healthcare, there is a sense that these problems have existed for a long time. And so there's longstanding frustration with the department. They had, um, I think it was in 2013 that they fined Kaiser $4 million for failing to provide um, behavioral health services. And so there's a sense among mental health advocates, like, great that you're doing this fine, and also 10 years later, why are we still here? Just ahead on Roundtable, there's a new type of court meant for San Diegans living with untreated schizophrenia or other psychotic disorders. We'll have an update on its rollout less than one month in. Obviously, Care Court is uh, very new. It's also uh, a little confusing is what we're hearing. That's coming up next, just after the break. KPBS On Demand is supported by the San Diego County Toyota dealers, whose commitment to customers extends to giving back to the community and who are proud to support the City of San Diego lifeguards with their important role of keeping our beaches safe. Toyota, let's go places. You're listening to KPBS Roundtable. I'm Matt Hoffman. This week, we're taking a look at Governor Gavin Newsom's efforts to transform California's mental health system. I'm joined by Jocelyn Weiner from Cal Matters, Courthouse News' Alan Raquelmi, and Lindsay Winkley from the San Diego Union-Tribune. So there's another treatment program rolling out, Care Court. It's meant to address those living with untreated schizophrenia or other psychotic disorders. And Jocelyn, you say this is Governor Newsom's signature mental health legislation from last year. It's being rolled out in seven counties and just started this month. How is Care Court supposed to work generally? So it basically allows family, close friends, first responders, behavioral health workers to petition a court to compel a person with untreated schizophrenia spectrum or other psychotic disorders into a court order treatment plan. And counties have noted that it's intended to address a fairly narrow population in terms of diagnosis, but um, I think they're they're trying to temper some of families' expectations of what it will be able to achieve. 
And we'll certainly get into the compelling uh, someone to do that part and the tempering of expectations in a minute. And Lindsay, we know that San Diego County was one of those first seven counties to roll it out. It just happened earlier this month. You recently wrote about how it's been going so far. What were you able to find? Yeah, it's going uh, slowly, which I think is what most people expected. Obviously, Care Court is uh, very new. It's also uh, a little confusing is what we're hearing. And there's a lot of different moving pieces. And I think that um, everybody expected that it was going to take some time to sort of establish itself. And that's certainly what we are seeing at this point. So let's get into how the state's changes to conservatorships may or may not overlap or like impact care court. There still seems to be a little bit of confusion about if it is voluntary or mandatory. We have a clip from Luke Bergman. He's director of San Diego County's Behavioral Health Services Department. Here's what he had to say about that. Care court is absolutely voluntary. And it's one of the sort of misunderstandings of it that has that has prevailed over many months. And in fact, concern about that engendered a great deal of um, activity and activism among disability rights activists in particular who were concerned that the CARE Act program would establish an additional pathway to conservatorship. And we also have a clip from San Diego County Public Defender Richard Gates. Here's how he put it. I think all of the parties agree that care court is a separate voluntary attempt to engage people at a time when a therapeutic alliance is necessary for the purposes of getting a better outcome for them. Whereas a conservatorship is usually considered to be almost the last possible attempt to protect a person from themselves. Okay, so let's kind of get into this here. Lindsay, we'll start with you first. And then Jocelyn, are you guys also hearing that it's voluntary or are you hearing something else? Well, I mean, I definitely think that that depends on who you ask. Uh, We have certainly heard from many county officials that care court is completely voluntary. But uh, there are certainly advocates who argue that care court is Uh, the opposite of voluntary. Uh, They'll note that this isn't a process that a person kickstarts for themselves. This is something that is placed upon them. Um, And there are really real accountability measures baked into this legislation. There are two paths in care court. There is a care agreement, which is sort of a lesser uh, treatment plan. And then there is a care plan, which is a court ordered treatment plan. And should you engage in the care plan process and fail to fulfill sort of the treatment that you all agreed to do so, uh, you can certainly find yourself being considered uh, for that can be considered at a future hearing under the LPS Act. But is that like talking, putting somebody into a conservatorship or you're still talking about in the framework of uh, of the care court? Well, so that's the argument. The argument is that the any sort of LPS act that occurs after the care uh, court process is completely separate. Right. So that's the that is what a lot of people, especially across the county, are saying. However, if you do not adhere to your care plan, um, If you go to the state's website and you read into the accountability that is baked into care court, um, it is very specific about how participants' failure to complete a care plan will be considered in any subsequent hearings under the LPS Act that occur within six months 
of the determine of the termination of that care plan. And so I think that the concern here is that sure, you could argue that that is a separate process, but they're inextricably linked to a lot of people when you read the legislation. And Jocelyn, what's your take here? I know you use the word compel when it comes to care court, um, voluntary or not voluntary? It seems a little bit like a gray area to me where it is being said that it is a voluntary, but there's a judge involved who's telling you what you need to do. And there is the possibility for some people that it could be at some point a pathway into conservatorship. Well, I just wanted to add that obviously judicial discretion is a really big part of CARE Act. Um, people locally have talked about this. People statewide have talked about this. And so one of the arguments that we heard locally is that if a judge chooses not to pursue those particular accountability measures, um, it may very well remain voluntary and stay voluntary. Um, but I think what a lot of people are asking for is acknowledgement that um, it is something that uh, exists. There is this path that is created by this legislation, whether or not a judicial um, individual decides to pursue that is you know, obviously going to be up to the individual counties. So it sounds like you're saying it's something that could happen, even though we know we've heard from county officials, they say, no, 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 like that's not the plan. When we spoke with San Diego County leaders around the time that care court started up, it was like at the end of September, there seemed to be some tempering of expectations of what it would do. Somebody alluded to this earlier. I think it was Jocelyn. Here's the county's behavioral health services director, Luke Bergman, again. It's left people with the sense generally that it's going to do an enormous amount, that it is going to maybe even fundamentally transform uh, behavioral health care in California counties. And I want to be very clear that that is not what it's designed to do. It is designed to, to do a very specific thing instead, which is create court orders for care plans for people with schizophrenia spectrum disorders specifically, in addition to a few other psychotic disorders. So Jocelyn, expectations have to come from somewhere, right? Like in the in the lead up to this? I mean, do you think that officials were overblowing this? Well, county officials certainly have been trying to temper expectations. State officials, I don't know, maybe it's too soon to tell, but I, I definitely would say that the county officials were trying to walk back some of the pronouncements um, that were coming from the state. And Lindsay, why do you think that is? I mean, I remember even San Diego Mayor Todd Gloria talking about this, like in the months leading up to it. Do you get the sense that it was overhyped, for lack of a better word? Yes, frankly, I think that there was a lot of surprise from individuals to learn the narrowness of focus of care court. You know, when we look at estimates as to how many people are going to be impacted by care court in just San Diego County, um, you know, officials are expecting about a thousand petitions and maybe 250 people to go through this system a year. And I think that when we first heard about care court, we were thinking that this was going to be a much more expansive initiative. And granted, it's important to acknowledge that the parameters of care court could always increase in the future. But currently, we aren't looking at a very large population of people. When we were sort of moving into our care court reporting process, we did hear from a lot of families who have family members with severe mental illnesses. And there was actually a lot of disappointment in that camp um, when they learned about the voluntary nature of care court, because there are um, some family members who feel that what they're 
family member needs uh, is not more involuntary treatment options, but more uh, or not more voluntary treatment options, but more involuntary treatment options. Um, I have received so many emails over the last several weeks from people who feel that their loved one would not uh, ever engage in a system willingly. Um, and that that's one of the reasons why they haven't been able to receive help. Now, granted, there are a lot of other people who completely disagree with that notion um, that believe that we need to bolster a lot more of our resources, um, not just treatment, but housing and just general forms of care uh, before we even consider creating additional tracks for involuntary treatment. But we've certainly heard from family members who were disappointed. And so it kind of sounds like everything we've been talking about is it remains to see what the impact or like how care court will fit into like the larger mental health care system yet? Yeah, absolutely. I, I think it's too early to say. And Jocelyn, we know that care court rolled out in seven counties, this initial phase, and then it's going to expand, right? Have you heard about, you know, what's happening in other parts of the state? Just a little bit. I talked to some of the rural counties early on about about it, but it was so early that there were very few people who had so far been part of it. I would say that in general, those counties have said that they're they're feeling prepared and they were feeling enthusiastic about leading the way on this. And we know that here in San Diego County, at least as of early October, they were still working to try to get more, I believe they called them boarding care beds to, you know, if somebody wants to go to care court, and they need some type of treatment, and they they need some housing uh, to to secure that. But we want to get everybody's thoughts here. You know, oftentimes in discussions about mental health care, this issue often gets tied to homelessness. And I want to get your thoughts on what we get right and what we get wrong when conflating mental health and homelessness in California. And uh, Lindsay, we can start with you. Sure. Well, I, I do think that it's really important to acknowledge that, yes, of course, there are some people who are homeless who are experiencing severe mental illness, but there are a lot of other people who are not homeless who are experiencing mental illness as well. And so I do think that, like Jocelyn said, and Alan also alluded to this, counties have been doing, uh, you know, have been trying to reframe, I think, people's understanding of sort of who this court is aimed at assisting. Um, and so I am I'm sure that we will see individuals who are homeless moving through care court, but there is definitely a larger population here. It's it's certainly not just confined to that uh, to that population of people. I think I remember Luke Bergman saying that it's not a prerequisite. You know, some doesn't have to be homeless to to qualify. Uh, but Jocelyn, what are some of your thoughts here? I think we need to keep front and center that the, the big causes of homelessness are lack of housing and lack of income. And I think we need to hold on to that lens as we try to make sense of why things are the way they are today. And I do worry that recently a lot of conversations about people who are homeless and mentally ill end up painting them as kind of caricatures as, as people who are other um, and as people who we don't want to see on the streets anymore because we don't want to see them there. And Alan, do you have any thoughts here? Well, one thing that, that really strikes me, and this is just concerning uh, some folks having a, a potential uh, misconception about uh, homeless people. I know from personal experience in Nevada County, 
there are many who who just believe that that unhoused folks are just coming in from other places. And when they do these point in time counts, what they find over and over again is that a vast majority of people uh, who are homeless either are from that county or they have family there. And I would just hope that facts such as that are are just thought about and and realized and recognized. So we've definitely covered a lot here. And before we go, we want to get some final thoughts for everyone. What are you going to be watching for in the weeks and months ahead? We know voters still have to weigh on on helping fund some of this mental health reform. Uh, And Lindsay, we can start with you. Yeah, well, I did want to say that I do think that it's important to acknowledge that, you know, when you talk to county leaders about things like care court and some of these mental health initiatives, a lot of people talk really passionately about the importance of being a lot better at providing the, you know, sort of the holistic treatment that a lot of people who are living with severe mental illness need. Um, And I think that that is completely true. You know, whether or not you decide that Care Court or any of these other initiatives is the path there, I do think that sort of as a community, we need to acknowledge that we are not very good uh, at providing services to the people who need it in a way that is accessible and um, transforming. Um, and so, you know, I just I think that that sort of that need is at the core of a lot of what we're trying to figure out here. Um, and it's and it's an important thing to think on. And Jocelyn, what are you going to be watching for? I think there's obviously so much suffering right now in our state. And it will be interesting to see, for example, there's this huge crisis in in mental health among yellow people right now. And how does that get? balanced um, along with this focus uh, on adults with serious mental illness. And also, as we talked about earlier, what role does um, the private sector, the commercial health plans play in paying for care corps and some of these other services, as well as just making sure that they are providing health care to the people who are on their plans? And Alan, you have the final word. Thank you. Uh, well, one thing I'm definitely interested in as uh, we get closer to the March election date, um, I, I want to know uh, what is the messaging coming out of the state, the supporters of Prop 1, as well as its opponents? Uh, what do they say? Why do they say it? It's something I'll be looking for. Well, we can certainly keep this discussion going, but we're going to have to end it there. I've been speaking with Courthouse News reporter Alan Raquelmi, Cal Matters Health and Mental Health reporter Jocelyn Weiner, and San Diego Union Tribune watchdog reporter Lindsay Winkley. And all of you, thanks so much for being here and helping us uh, sort through all this. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Thanks for having me, too. When Roundtable returns, it's time for The Roundup, where we take a look at some other stories with producer Andrew Bracken. That's just ahead on KPBS Roundtable. You're listening to KPBS Roundtable. I'm Matt Hoffman. It's now time for our weekly roundup. It's where producer Andrew Bracken comes in with some stories he's been following throughout the week, some other top stories. Andrew, happy Friday. Hey, Matt. Great to have you here. Okay, so what's on your list this week? 
Well, you might remember on an earlier roundtable back in August, we talked about this so-called water divorce that was going on. Two smaller districts, Rainbow and Fallbrook, were attempting to leave the San Diego County Water Authority. And there was a pretty contentious, you know, some contentious and controversial back and forth on that. The San Diego County Water Authority was trying to prevent them from leaving, and they were putting together a vote to put to their voters in Fallbrook, in Rainbow, to see if they could leave that district. One effort that came out of that was an effort to to make a state bill that would change how these smaller districts could leave these larger ones. Um, Basically, it would change how the voting works. Instead of just going to the voters of Fallbrook or those in the Rainbow Municipal Water District, it would also go to the larger district around San Diego County. One local state senator, Tasha Berner Horvath, she put together a state law to kind of help stop this effort from Fallbrook and Rainbow leaving. And Governor Newsom signed this bill in the flurry of bills he signed this past legislative session. We had two reporters on that, Mackenzie Elmer and Alexander Wynn, in a previous roundtable, if you want to get into the San Diego water divorce. Uh, But we know that this is something that's important because because the Water Authority basically says, if they leave, we're going to be stuck with more infrastructure investments, a la, you know, people are going to have to pay more for their water, whereas these two districts are saying, you know, we're already paying higher rates than we should because we think we can get water cheaper elsewhere. So uh, it sounds like it's only going to get messier. Well, and the interesting thing is this new state law, it actually won't take effect until next year. But Fallbrook and Rainbow, their voters are going to vote on this water divorce this fall. So that law, it may prevent smaller districts from contemplating this in the future, but it won't play a role necessarily in Fallbrook and Rainbow's future as part of San Diego's water district. Something we'll definitely keep our eyes on. Okay, what else? Coyotes. Coyotes, Matt. Um, (laughs) San Diego Union Tribune's David Garrick published a piece about coyotes, specifically asking if they're, he says, you know, are they getting bolder, basically? And it's interesting because it, it cites this kind of, you know, increase in sightings of coyotes, but also asks questions if that's actually verified by the data. One reason for this increase may be that there's just so many more video cameras on people's homes so that they, you know, see the wildlife more frequently around their homes. In any case, San Diego's County News Center put out kind of like a how-to, like what you're supposed to do if you do see a coyote out there. First off, stop and yell. So stop, yell at it to go away. And it says, make yourself look big and scary by waving your arms around, maintaining eye contact, uh, stomping your feet, making loud noises. So I think it's all about just making your presence felt and not showing fear, which would be hard for me to do if I came across a coyote. And then the last one is maybe a little more obvious, always maintain a safe distance. And uh, I don't know if you've come across any coyotes. I have not. There's not a lot. I don't. I, well, maybe there are coyotes in Mission Valley. Um, I've not seen uh, a lot of coyotes uh, in this area. Actually, there could be because there's a lot of hills, um, but I, I haven't seen any. Uh, the only one in there, maintain eye contact. That sounds scary. I don't know. I don't know if I would... Uh, Yeah, that's a tall order. That one's a tall order. I agree. Tall order. Um, I have seen coyotes before in other parts of Southern California. The one giveaway to me is sometimes people are like, is that a coyote? Isn't it? One thing to me is always they seem a little bit thinner 
than a dog. You know what I mean? Because I also have most of my dogs have kind of looked coyote-ish. We've often wondered if they have been part coyote. But one difference when we see these sort of wild coyotes is they're just super kind of gangly, sort of uh, very, very thin. So that's my my giveaway. And then the last thing that this County News Center piece does mention is this, you know, you can get these things called coyote rollers. And they're just something I guess you can put on your fences to prevent coyotes from jumping over them. So that's another suggestion if, you, if you're worried about coyotes in your area. Yeah, I, I know that this is something that came up during our, our weekly news meeting, and there was a lot of discussion about, are there more coyotes? Are there not? Um, and our, our science and tech reporter said that a roadkill study uh, showed that maybe there's not an increase in coyotes. Um, but like you said, a lot of people have these uh, video doorbells, so maybe seeing more of them. All right, what else? Axio San Diego, they had a little piece about what they called Nepo home buyers. A Redfin report that it refers to found that nearly 40% of recent buyers under 30, they received at least some money from family to be able to afford their house, the down payment on their home. And so it's just this idea that you need to have this sort of, you know, uh, family wealth to be able to afford any kind of home, even a starter home, you know, are incredibly expensive for for people today. And another study they referred to, I think it's from Bankrate, said that, you know, about three quarters say affordability is the number one obstacle from preventing people from buying a home. Not surprising here in San Diego. Um, and if my parents are listening, uh, I would love to get a home. So let's be Nepo home buyers. Okay, what else you got? Well, on the sports front, the San Diego Wave FC, they finished their regular season. They won the NWSL Shield. That is given to the team with the best regular season record. And what's even better, so they're in the playoffs. They're going to have a home playoff game at Snapdragon. That's going to be Sunday, November 5th. They actually have a bye this week. But next Sunday, they'll be playing a home playoff game. But what's even cooler is, you know, not to get ahead of it, but the NWSL championship will be played in Snapdragon this year, whether the wave are in it or not. But at least they're in, you know, prime driving spot to be able to make that final. So we'll see there. Recently in Roundtable, we reviewed the disappointing Padre season. And one thing that came up was this idea of a San Diego sports curse. Star forward Alex Morgan, you know, after they won this match this last weekend and won the Shield, she did kind of refer to the lack of titles in San Diego. Here's what she had to say. We want to win the whole thing. Um, the Shield is amazing. We're going to celebrate that, but we want to also have the championship as well and bring it to San Diego um, because I, I don't know, even in soccer or out of soccer, if there have been many or any championships here in San Diego. So we want to be, um, we want to be that team. And this is pretty extraordinary. The Wave, they're only in their second season. You know, it usually takes a few seasons for expansion teams to kind of get up and running, but they have proven themselves to be a very successful organization. And and this is a good sign of uh, the future to come. So we'll see how the rest of the season plays out. It is very exciting, and it's awesome to see uh, San Diegans and San Diego sports fans supporting them. Uh, their most recent home game, I saw a photo of the Jumbotron 
30,000 fans in, in there in Snapdragon Stadium. So just so cool and, and so exciting to see all, all the photos of them celebrating. But I got to say, Andrew, San Diego Soccer's 16-time indoor soccer champion. So we do have some championship-winning teams here in San Diego, a la the Padres have not done it. We saw the Aztecs men's basketball team get close, but, you know, it's not all bad. And there's even more soccer news this weekend. The San Diego Loyal in what will be their final season and could be their last match. They too have a playoff game this Sunday. Um, that's at 7 PM at USD's Torero stadium. Like I said, they're, they're shutting down the end of the season. So I think um, this, this could be the last match and the last time you could see this team. So that's, an, you know, there's just a, there's a lot of soccer going on right now, but regardless, like I said, the NWSL championship will be played in Snapdragon and hopefully the wave will be there. We definitely hope that's going to be the case. All right, uh, you got one more? Yeah, one more. I, I saw this in the UT. There's a very, very short story contest. Um, it's called the Matchbook Story Contest, and it's from Library Foundation SD's library shop. Basically, anybody can submit a very short story. The idea is it's a story that fits on a box of matches about you know less than 50 words or so, and it's for like a $5 entry fee. Also, teams can enter. That's a little bit more, but you can have $75 with unlimited entries from a, you know, a company or a group or something. And the deadline for that is November 5th. And I just thought, I don't know, I have kids and the kids are always creating stuff and doing these cool art projects. It's not often that, you know, we get a contest or an art contest where we can do it. It doesn't come up all the time in our everyday lives. So I thought it was cool. And I'll just read, I wanted to read last year's contest winner. It's Cindy Chen. And here was her matchbook story. While we sat there, they came. They watched her with blank, warm eyes and lifted her away. We still talk about her. The girl who was taken by a murder and wonder if the crows will ever strike again. So that's what won last year. You don't need to copy it, but just to give you an idea of what it is, I just think it's kind of a cool thing. Like, I don't know, Matt, maybe me and you can, uh, you know, come up with a story and, and get an entry in there. Maybe. Yeah, no, that, that was a, that, that sounds like a high bar. It's like, it's almost like a mix of like poetry with a creative writing. So uh, it, it does sound interesting. And we know we can write short, right? We have to fill short times for our stories here on KPBS. So maybe we could do it. Well, good luck, Matt. We'll see. You're the winner <laughs> next year. Maybe we'll go against each other in the entry. Uh, <laughs> Andrew Bracken, thanks for being here on the Roundup. Thank you, Matt. We appreciate you joining us for Roundtable this week. If you have a question or comment on anything you heard today, you can leave us a voicemail, 619-452-0228. You can also email us, roundtable at kpbs.org. If you missed any part of the show, check out the KPBS Roundtable podcast. Roundtable airs on KPBS radio at noon on Fridays and again on Sunday at 6 a.m. Roundtable is produced by Andrew Bracken, and I'm your host, Matt Hoffman. Thanks so much for being here with us. Have a great weekend. KPBS On Demand is supported by MaraCal Design and Remodeling, helping homeowners with their home remodeling needs. From ADUs to custom kitchen remodels and room additions, MaraCal Design and Remodeling designs and builds your dream home. Learn more at trustyourhometous.com.